Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Alright, so welcome everyone to another episode of the Phrenesis podcast. Uh, today we are taking a look at Joseph Piper's uh, essay, Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. Um, and this is a really fun, interesting one. Uh, Piper is a, a really interesting figure himself. Uh, born in what was then the German Empire in 1904, he um, had a pretty long, successful career uh, studying and then teaching at, at the University of Munster. Um and is notable particularly uh, a couple of his more famous books are, are The Four Cardinal Virtues and uh, Leisure, The Basis of Culture. The Four Cardinal Virtues in particular is a fantastic um, overview uh, sort of survey uh, of virtue theory and Aristotelian Thomistic ethics. Um, a great book, great book, uh, as is this essay. Um, and Throughout the course of this, Piper is charting sort of starting with Plato, the the difficulties of um, communication, communicating truth, and uh, um, seems perennial difficulties brought about by, by sophistry. And, and his thesis such that <clears throat> the abuse of language is, is in a form uh, an abuse of power. And so throughout, he analyzes and explains the mechanisms by which language is a, a manifestation of power, how language is used to uh, expand or, or take advantage of power. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you have some initial thoughts on this? Well, I, I was actually just going to ask you uh, why. So th- this essay was Brad's, uh, was Brad's pick, and my familiarity with Piper basically only extended to um, being aware of the book on leisure and the book on the virtues, um, both of which I think you've read, and then being uh, sort of vaguely aware of him as one of these uh, spearheads of the Thomist revival in the the 20th century in uh, Catholic theology, especially. Uh, So I was just wondering if you could... um, lay out why you think at uh, at an abstract level this essay is interesting or or worthwhile and then you know hopefully as we uh, move through it that'll be more apparent to everyone listening yeah um so so piper in general is fascinating as you say kind of a helping bring about a, a revival uh, of a certain type of Thomism, not, not uh, a neo-Thomist scholar, but um, he he's, has an interesting sort of synthetic approach. Um, throughout his work, something that uh, really shines through is, is the simplicity and clarity and efficacy of language uh, utilized throughout. He, I wouldn't really call him a, a great, pro-stylist in the sense of um, being, he, he doesn't throw about uh, witty turns of phrase. It's not um, colorful writing, but it, it's incredibly precise, uh, very clear. Um, 
and very accessible, interesting, uh, easy, easy to read. And so um, that is something that's always struck me about him. And so I was very curious um, as to how he conceives as a writer and thinker, uh, the use of language and what goes in his mind in terms in terms of writing. And so I thought this was, um, in a sense, an interesting way of getting at that. But also, um, I mean, it, it's been a concern in past episodes we've done, I think is a broader social concern of the moment, uh, the manner in which language can be used and abused. Um, it, I mean, uh, this seems like just such a better, more thoughtful um, and prettier version of, of the Orwell essay uh, on politics and English. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually going to say that. So uh, Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, is one that I have long resisted us recording on, mostly because I identify it with like high school English classes. And but uh, this does you know, they have at least the same thrust, though. I agree this is a far more sophisticated version of that. Um, yeah, and the. <clears throat> I mean, I guess I, I had a, a, a notion of Piper coming into it, which is, again, sort of neo, neo-Thomist. Um, and I, I was expecting something that read a, more, read a lot more like doctrinaire um, uh, sort of Thomism. But, I mean, beginning with the, the focus on language, that's a very contemporary problem if you uh, kind of situate him you know, the broadly within the history of philosophy or something, language in that sense doesn't become a, cer- a concern until, you know, a century ago or something. Um, and then I guess the other thing that, that surprised me is, uh, you know, so he, he makes a claim about uh, the abuse of language, which is really just a form of sophistry. Uh, something that I think he reads the entirety of Plato's dialogues as trying to sort through the problem of sophistry um what what is so evil about it um you know why why is it evil or bad or something to be resisted and what is to be opposed to sophistry uh and that that's a perennial a perennial problem is that that people can uh as he says abuse language in that way um i mean but the i guess the other thing that that struck me as he he returns to plato over and over again and indeed anchors the essay in Plato um, is that, uh, you know, he relies on a, a very sort of modern, which we, we might think is more accurate, but modern reading of Plato uh, that, you know, that focuses on, on language um, as opposed to like a very metaphysical uh, Neoplatonic reading that predominated until say like Nietzsche and, um, and so, it, you know, the, all of that to say that uh, he reads as a, a much more modern thinker uh, than I expected. Um, and we, we were talking a little bit about before this, and I think we'll get to it, but touches on, uh, maybe doesn't go as far as, but touches on cons- on concerns uh, that we would identify as being raised by like post-structuralist thinkers, Um with a with a big difference, uh, but 
um, you know, in his concern on language, they at least overlap in some ways, but I'm sure we'll get to that uh, later. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it is interesting, coming from a, a sort of Catholic, uh, moral philosopher, Catholic theologian, at times, uh, seeing what, what we normally associate much, much more closely with po- post-structuralists. Um, and I think you're right about him reading as fairly modern, but I mean, it, it's probably important to note his university teaching career began in I think, 1950, shortly after um, the end of the uh, Second World War uh, in Germany. And so these concerns of language and how it's abused, it, in this essay, he's never very explicit uh, talking about uh, the Nazi regime. He, he does uh, allude to their final solution at, at a at a couple instances, and that as as sort of a, a marketing uh, abuse of language to, to try. It's, yeah, it, it's strange uh, the, the manner in which they're, they're not wholly uh, addressed, but the Nazi uh, party, certainly Nazi ideology, certainly casts a shadow um, over all of this. And, and he is thoroughly, um, throughout this essay, uh, repeatedly uh, quotes Hegel. Uh, I think only one time uh, quotes Nietzsche, but that's at a very pivotal sort of sort of moment in the essay. So um, yeah, and, uh, and yeah, I mean you can you can see him engaged with either the major figures of the generation immediately before him, or in some sense his own he quotes Bertrand Russell once he quotes Carl Jaspers several times so you know he's engaging engaging with uh you know major figures in I guess what we consider early analytical philosophy or existentialism in in Jaspers so it's not insulated by by any stretch and um interestingly I think his first book um, that he did with his wife, Hildegard, uh, was a translation of a C.S. Lewis um, work. And so it is an interesting sort of mix of ingredients coming together here uh, between uh, Catholic and more broadly uh, Christian thought, um, German thought, analytic thought, all all sort of meshing together here, um, similar to some of the things that, that uh, certainly inspired post-structuralists, but but with a certain flair. Right. So so I guess getting into it. Um, so he make he makes a claim and he says he's he's going to uh, to go through this this essay with reference to Plato, and he says whenever I'm talking about this is this is paraphrasing. Uh, whenever I'm talking about Plato, uh, you should assume that I'm also talking about our contemporary times. And whenever I'm making a phrase about our contemporary times, you should assume that this is something that Plato dealt with and is thus a uh, perpetual and timeless and ineradicable human problem. Uh, and, and in short, uh, what is that? Or what, what was Plato dealing with as an instance of that? How did it manifest itself in um, the fourth century BC? Athens. I, I think you're right about the equation of Plato and uh, contemporary times 
for him, it seems very clear that that Piper doesn't view human nature as particularly changing um, in in any sort of sense, uh, and that uh, throughout this essay, he refers to, in quoting both Plato and Hegel, uh, Hegel's writings on Plato, sort of the the manner by which uh, sophists are kind of the greatest humanists or have the greatest understanding uh, of human nature that they're able to, to play off of. Um, he also quotes Hegel that you need not have advanced very far in your learning in order to find good reasons, even for the most evil of things, all the evil deeds in this world since Adam and Eve have been justified with good reasons. I also just, it's kind of um, ironic, at least giving uh at least given what the sort of caricature readings of Hegel are that he quotes him uh, in order to make a point about these sort of perpetual and transhistorical problems that, um, that recur throughout history, uh, which uh, again, I don't think Hegel's that allergic to that, but you know, given the sort of reductive or um, caricatured readings of him, it's funny that he's the one that he chooses to, to quote, to make, to make the point of, uh, you know, a recurring type of person or a recurring activity or temptation. Before diving into the, um, problems raised by sophists and sophistry and, uh, Socrates criticism of sophists, Piper first gives an account of some of the reasons why sophistry has been viewed perversely, strangely, perhaps, as a mechanism of, of freedom. Uh, he, he quotes Werner Jaeger uh, describing the sophists as the earliest humanists, praised for being great educators and teachers, as advocates uh, for the freedom of thought. And he also somewhat neutrally, uh, non-normatively, without a sense of normativity, quotes both Hegel and Nietzsche describing sophists as being uh, among us, the era of the sophists being being our time. That, I, when he talks about the, the sophists being, I guess, early defenders, say, of the freedom of thought or something, it also um, it also made you know made me think that the the political conditions of Athens at that time were particularly conducive to not just sophistry, but to, uh, you know, the eventual, um, doing of philosophy, uh, you know, in that, in that, in, uh, you know, democracy as it existed, then, uh, you had, um, something of the freedom to, to go around and do philosophy and question people. Um, and that, that, that it seems like the, um, the correlative of the freedom of Socrates to go out and do philosophy until such time as they decided to take that freedom away, at least, um, is the freedom to go out and be a sophist. Um, so, you know, it seems that uh, if you want the freedom to be able to do the one, you accept the danger of the other arising. Um, you can't, you can't, you know, have, uh, you can't have the good, which is, you know, philosophy, um, without at least creating the conditions that the bad, which is sophistry, 
uh, will end up emerging as well. Right. And it's also a difficult question. Um, I think it's not always clearly presented uh, in Plato's writings, and it's very unclear to me where the line is uh, between Socrates and the Sophists. Piper, uh, in the middle of this essay, is trying to grapple with why exactly sophistry is bad. Um, what what is the evil that it brings about? Uh, why was Plato so um, enangered by by uh, the sophists? And how do we delineate between what is sophistry and, and what is philosophy? Right. And his his short answer is is extremely difficult, but he is going 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 to try. You know, because he says that this isn't just. He talks about, and I guess we'll have to work back a little here, but he, he, you know, he talks about like advertising as the, uh, the, one of the typical modern forms of, uh, of sophistry, um, which is you know, sort of a instrumental use of language in the sense that you want to use it to manipulate people. Um, but that even in, he says, philosophy and theology, uh, that, that that occurs and it can be extremely difficult to tell when an author is using manipulative language like that or, or the, whether they're, you know, in, in earnest or whether they actually care about speaking, um, you know, with concern for the truth. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And he makes uh, a great illustration of this, uh, talking about, uh, contemporary academia, uh, and that it's very difficult to t- determine when someone is earning wages or earning an honorarium. When when the work is something to be respected uh, as uh, great thought, as philosophy proper, or is something less than. And I, we're not unsensitive to this issue. He quotes uh, Sartre, um, who, you know, says something along the lines of, uh, like, why do we recoil at the thought of writers getting paid? Um, you know, are they not just earning a wage like everyone else doing anything? Um, but, and and then Piper refers to the incommensurability of, of he says, uh, money and mind. Uh, but, you know, we um, we edit a publication um, we ourselves don't get paid for it, um, but we do pay our writers. Um, and in the Twitter world, uh, it's not that uncommon to see accusations being lobbed around uh, that that writing is um, uh, inauthentic or otherwise tainted by the fact that it's remunerated, that that the author was compensated for uh, his or her thoughts um, and, and that the money somehow corrupts, corrupts the process of, of thought. So, um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a real, you know, real issue. Um, And that, that he, he sees that abuse of language um, arises because of ulterior motives. And that can be, that can be just, honor in the academy or from the public 
It can be trying to manipulate a single person to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, and it can also be money. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I, you know, reading this, he says it's very hard. It might be impossible to distinguish in, uh, in a lot of cases. This is something we'll, we'll certainly have to come back to. I, I think it, there, I think externally it uh, might be impossible or very difficult to make distinctions. Um, but I, I want to make sure. I don't think that means that uh, Piper is saying there is no distinctions. There very, very clearly is a distinction. Um, no, no, no. Yes. But it's very difficult to evaluate and ascertain. And, and I, I think this connects very well uh, to some of his, his virtue theory, wherein oftentimes a, a virtuous uh, or unvirtuous act, the distinction might purely be intentionality. Uh, and I, I think that's, he never makes that explicit, uh, in this essay, but that again, seems to be, uh, one of the very important components to this, um, as we'll come to see the most certainly one who, who intends to be a sophist is a sophist, uh, one who intends to be a philosopher perhaps might not be a philosopher, but, but if you intend, uh, something that is not good if you intend the evil, um, that that is the the, the true state uh, of your action or, or, or disposition. Um, right. Or, I mean, and in this case, that would be disregarding what you know, or at least believe to be true um, in, in favor of using language in some other way. Whereas if you're, if you're earnestly using language at least in consideration of the truth, uh, you might be wrong. And that, that, that could be another problem with language, I guess, but you're not abusing it. Um, right. Yeah. That's, that's, that is what reading this, I started to suspect was that it, um, to, to know for sure you have to know intention. Although, although there, there are certainly cases that we could identify where it's obvious. And so at this moment, uh, Piper hops around various uh, Socratic dialogues, uh, quickly starting with the Cratylus, uh, uh recounting the, the funny, funny story of Socrates being asked his opinion on a certain matter, uh, and Socrates only being able to offer up that he has no opinion because he could only afford the five drachma lecture uh, and didn't have the money to, to afford the 50 drachma lecture. So he is not knowledgeable at the matter at hand to sort of poke fun at this. But uh, then he hops around a little bit more uh, going into the Protagoras discussing the beauty, the handsomeness of Alcibiades, uh, and then into the Theotetus. Speaking of, of Theotetus and, and his ugliness and, and in like Socrates' own ugliness. And this is a really interesting moment in the essay. And it's drawing from this concept of beauty and ugliness uh, is where I, I think uh, Piper really is able to firm up how, how he perceives uh, language. 
And that is, I mean, I suppose you can take it somewhat on, on face value. Things that are beautiful and pleasing and for whatever reason draw our affections have a quality about them that dispose us to be interested or engaged in a manner that things that are ugly do not. And, and there's sort of a wordplay here wherein beauty in a sense, um, and I, I think particularly in the Greek, might evoke or, or mean some sort of perfection, some wholeness, some completeness, um, a fulfillment of purpose. But that that's not the way it's commonly understood. And, and there's a disparity or disconnect between something actually being good and whole and true and something being considered beautiful or, or pleasing. And that doesn't mean that beauty, beauty proper in some sense of, of ideal or form is not good, but, but the things that we might assign beauty to seem to be misguided at times. And so, right. And he hasn't, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, and yeah, it seems like they're talking about the appearance of the speaker, but I mean, they're also implying the quality of the speeches uh, and, um, and the, that, you know, Piper says, sophists oftentimes tend to have the utmost linguistic skill, uh, and often, oftentimes also are the most intelligent. Um, and, and that that's how you can be so manipulative. Uh, but, but that the, the beauty doesn't guarantee the, the, the truth of the, um, the speech or even the integrity of the speech and that a beautiful speech can in some way be base, uh, or evil, uh, you know, but, and so distinguishing something like between the rhetorical quality and the, the, let's say intention, um, you know, not that, not that it must be true. It must have a positive truth value or something, but, just that that at least the intention um, the intention that it be true is not guaranteed by the fact that it's beautiful somehow and this is where uh, Piper's I suppose philosophic ecumenicism uh, comes in as he starts uh, wrapping in elements of um, <clears throat> what would appear to be more Thomistic or Aristotelian uh, in into these platonic dialogues and platonic thought talking about he, he starts uh, de- uh, defining and making distinctions in terms of what language uh, is and does. And he sets about two elements for it and then speaks of both a generation and a corruption of each of those. And so Piper, Piper continues that the two aspects of word and of all language um, are distinct, but nevertheless, uh, not capable of being separated. And the first one, importantly, is is communication. Uh, And it's merely that language is used to draw one toward another. Uh, Language is used to foster some sort of bond. And... um, Right. Well, he says that that when when we speak, at least properly... um, we report we we purport to say something about reality 
Um, but that that already implies a person uh, to whom you're speaking, a, a somebody to whom that claim about reality is addressed. Um, I mean, I think in, implicit in there is that it might just be to ourselves, um, but that that that's still. I mean, we think we think in language, but you know, but that there is an implied, um, d I guess, indirect object of the the claim we're making, somebody to whom we're speaking, um, and that so that all language is interpersonal. There wouldn't be language if there were hypothetically only one person. There would be no point in naming something. Um, you know, the the reason, uh, maybe not the reason, but like with the you know the function it serves is that we can hold the same object in common because it's signified by the same word or something. Right. Right. And so there, there with language, there, there are two uh, objects. It seems the yeah. other person, uh, perhaps other people that you're communicating with the goal being uh, coming together and sharing something uh, unity uh quite, quite literally. And the other, again, said be, being descriptive of reality. And uh, Piper makes a moral claim that a lie could not possibly be taken as communication because the object uh, of an intended lie is distorted. It, it's corrupting uh, of this process. And so if your goal is to mislead, to not describe reality as such, it's not possible that your uh, primary goal is actually coming into communication, unity, and sharing of something with another. It's uh, purposefully willing a, a severing of that, or 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 a separation, a, a balance to the to the relationship. Um, and this is another point I, I think where it's it's clear his um, ethical theory uh, come comes into play. This is. Uh, very much in line uh, with his thoughts on, on charity uh, and love for for another. Um, God. Yeah, he has this this um, statement just not that much further down from what you're saying. Um, I, I, it seems to extend or radicalize not just not just it allows us to hold something um, you know in common or uh, you know, sh share in something together. But he says, word and language form the medium that sustains the common, ex common existence of the human spirit as such. Uh, uh, I mean, so, I mean, it, it seems, and eventually he extends language um, to images and uh, um, he talks about, you know, film, literature, painting, art is a form of language, poetry is a form of language. Uh, but, but there's not a lot of, um, uh, I guess, you know, society or community outside of language as such, at least taken in that, in that expansive form, I mean, to which we might add, you know, gestures and, 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 and things like that, uh, which I guess, I guess, um, I know he he introduces his sort of Aristotelian to mystic um, uh, methodology here, and also a form of ethics. Uh, but this, to me, uh, um, evokes what Heidegger says when he says language is the house of being. Um, that that 
uh, all truth is disclosed in and only in language, basically, or at least mediated by uh, the by language. And again, that's the modernness of Piper, who's you know, attentive to language. It's not just a pure experience or something like that. And he pushes back um, against uh, Gorgias and uh, his sense of um, there being, of there not being, uh, being in language and in communication. So I, I think you are absolutely uh, right about that. And so, interestingly, Piper comes to the conclusion here that a writer, an orator, an artist of any sort isn't the person who most compellingly or most beautifully produces uh, their proper content, the proper object of of their art. Or, sorry, content in in the sense we we use it now, but it but it's the conviction in, in the substantive content uh, uh, of any art that is what makes someone an artist. A, a writer uh, with all of their flourishes and beautiful prose is not a writer as such. A writer convinced of his thoughts and communication. Right, right, and and not not just that. Um... But that to be a uh, a consumer has too much of a like market connotation. Uh, but to be an interpreter or a reader or uh, someone presented with a piece of art also requires an interest in, uh, he says, reality or you know the, um, you know the truth in what's being presented. Uh, he says that um, interest in reality underlies all dialogue. There can't be dialogue unless both interlocutors are somehow interested in that um and i guess i would you know i would offer that um you know an author writing even say a novel um you know who's interested in reality in some way um and then a reader to interpret that properly uh and to, to be in dialogue with that author must do the same thing uh as well so it's not just you and me sitting across from each other talking about this um you know but it's also any form of uh language broadly understood uh and being the recipient of that language or respondent to that language um there's always there's always two people involved it's always it's always dialogic even if um you anticipate a partner in that dialogue who you're not com- immediately confronted with certainly so in line with plato's socrates uh, Piper seems to find that the linguistic artist is is a speaker of truth, and so at this point he starts to transition uh, to the next part of the essay. Rather than abuse of language, the abuse of power and how language functions as an instrument uh, of power. And there's a few fascinating um, lines here uh, in reference uh, to Socrates. Again, uh, Piper writes. Uh, Socrates uh, forces Gorgias to admit that such sophisticated language disconnected from the roots of truth, in fact, pursues some ulterior motives that invariably turns into an instrument of power, something it has been by its very nature right from the start. And now it seems strange uh, initially, and Piper is aware of this, that that language might be an instrument of power. 
uh, more so than, than just persuasion or communication, power is imbued in it somehow. And, and he continues, whoever speaks to another person, not simply we presume in spontaneous convert conversation, but using well-considered words, and whoever in so doing is explicitly not committed to the truth, whoever, in other words, is in this guided by something other than the truth, such a person from that moment on no longer considers the other as partner, as equal. In fact, he no longer respects the other as a human person. And that, that's quite the claim, that the element of sophistry, the lack of purity in intention uh, in communication, not, not seeking to, to just uh, write or exclaim or, or film with the truth in mind, is to not respect the other, the conversation partner, the interlocutor, the the audience as a human person. Yeah, it's this, uh, I know it's not, but, you know, the second form of the categorical imperative, uh, you always treat someone as an end in themselves and not a means to an end. I mean, it's kind of like that. Um, I, you know, basic. In, you know, in the, in, the, in the sense that you are, it doesn't have to be Kantian, but, you know, in the, in the sense that the other person becomes an object to be manipulated. Um, and in, in fact, you're only using language to manipulate that person to do something. Um, and, you know, which is an, I mean, I, I think he implies just an aff affront to the dignity of that person. Um, I mean, it is, it is their concern for truth is a problem, um, and, and is an evil in and of itself. Uh, th but what's also evil is just a, like blatant disregard for the, I, I think he also says subjectivity, but you know, agency of the person whom you're addressing. Yeah. And, uh, Piper calls this strangely flattery. Uh, yeah. flattery being being having an ulterior motive in, in communication, uh, addressing the other not not simply to please or tell something that is true, but rather to get something uh, from the other. Yeah, and, and that the moment one, one flatters, uh, the interlocutor has become not a partner, not a fellow subject an object to be manipulated, possibly to be dominated, to be handled and controlled. <sighs> flattery <laughs> is an instrument of power. Flat flattery is a dehumanizing instrument of power. And it, it, it's certain that he has a, a clear sense of, of flattery throughout this. And he, he traces sort of the etymology of the word and historical use and it doesn't mean saying something solely for the sake of pleasing another. That might not be flattery in this sense. Yeah, it's it, it's an I I I think counterintuitive um, sense of the word than how I usually understand it, which is just um again saying something nice about someone that may or may not be true. Um, but then I guess the question arises, well, why would you be doing that? Um, you don't just do that in a vacuum. Um, but 
then the next the next thing I thought of is uh, like who does Machiavelli warn the prince against? Um, who are the kinds of people that they should avoid? And one of them is flatterers. And why is that? Because uh, you know you the prince like to hear nice things said about you. But the problem is those people always have ulterior motives. Um, other, well, otherwise, they'd just be saying the truth, the truth, um, if it's true. Uh, but I mean, I think he also implies that you could say something is true with ulterior motives, and that would be a problem. So he gives the example of a colleague who just published an article. Um, and you know, he says, I read your article, and I was fascinated by it. Um, and, um, you know, if that's untrue, it's a problem to the extent that they have ulterior motives. But I think even if he had read the colleague's article and was intrigued by it, uh, it would still be a problem if he said that because he wanted something in return or had any ulterior motives other than just congratulating the colleague. Right. And that's why the uh, bipartite distinction uh, of the two purposes of language being communication that is very, very truly unity with another person or growing closer to another person and representation of reality. And so in this uh, flattery, that's a lie, obviously is a corruption of reality and is therefore bad. But if you have any ulterior motive in the communication, regardless of veracity, it's a corruption of the, the communication. You're not seeking to unite with the other person um, in sharing in something, in happiness and friendship. You, you're seeking to exploit them in, in some sort of sense. And, and I mean, I, I think he's really drawing on Aristotle here, uh, Nicomachean Ethics. That That is... I mean, when, when Aristotle talks about things that, that prohibit friendship, inequality is being one of them. Uh, and, and when you begin to manipulate or, um, you know, use the power of language to take advantage of another, that, that is forcing an inequality. It is, it is manipulation and it is the severing of the, the friendship. And so, um, yeah, strange, strangely true. True uh, flattery is evil, is bad, immoral. Right, and and it, there seems to be a implied claim here, um, which is that community is, is only possible if it is oriented toward reality, uh, which in, which itself is uh, imbued. Uh, with normativity or with goodness um, because uh, you could imagine a community um, that is united around what he would later call pseudo reality, right? You you construct an entirely alternate, but untrue, untrue reality um, around which the community coalesces and in which they share. Um, and uh my sense is that you end up with an extremely degraded form of community uh, because that is what the, I mean, that's, that's what the Nazis tried to do. I mean, it's what they did do for, for 11 years or um, how, however long they was, in, they were in power was try to construct a community 
um, around something false, uh, entirely detached from reality, and that that the ensuing regime was the most degraded uh, in history. So I, you know, I think you'd say it was the most detached and therefore from reality and therefore the most degraded regime we've ever seen, um, and that a, a proper community can only exist you know, with a view of the good or reality, but I think they're kind of the same for him. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, the real would be would be good. And, and I think that's probably right. But also, um, I, I think that'd be a society failing in the first purpose of language as well, in communication, and not just that uh, it doesn't adhere to reality. The end goal of it isn't in drawing closer to those around you, isn't in some expression uh, of charity or love for one another. It's using uh, propaganda, the tools of the state to, to dehumanize another intentionally, um, which is quite extreme. And, and so he he does seem to, he moves on to discuss society in line with what we've described. Um, he never can uh, explicitly mentions uh, Nazi Germany uh, but he does spend a lot of time discussing advertising, uh, particularly cigarette advertising. Um, he, he says, we should also consider how these ubiquitous commercials in turn possess the power to influence human attitudes as these commercials propagate a dream world primarily by glorifying human weaknesses. Uh, and he talks about how the cigarette ads don't even seem to have anything to do with the product uh, they're being sold. You've come a long way, baby. Smooth character. Come to where the flavor is. Alive with pleasure. Nonsensical. But, he, he says, we still buy the products. We, we pay for the privilege of, of this flattery, uh, of this advertising. And we seem to desire it. Um, and this was a, a moment I had a little bit of a, a tough time um, because it seems like he, he rather asserts it. I don't, I don't think he's wrong. Um, but Piper says that the world wants to be deceived and leaves it sort of as such that, that we seek the comfort of flattery, um, the beauty of, of flattering sophists. Um, but that for some reason, the, this is something we really, really want, um, almost universally, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you could couldn't you just think of that as? I, I I don't think to say that is to deny that we also want to participate in something that's true. Um, I, I I think you could just as easily say that there are uh, contradictory drives or drives operating in two different directions. Um, you know, one of which is you know flattery flattery works because you know, uh, we, we like it, uh, because we hear something that we, that we want to hear. And so there's a drive toward that hearing pleasant, pleasant things about ourselves, uh, like in these, uh, kind of silly advertisements, but that there's also a drive towards something true. And I think those can, those can coexist. Um, and if one predominates, then, uh, you know, you end up with people, um, kind of, uh, you know, who are taken in by, by this kind of advertising. 
Yeah, yeah, and and he, Piper certainly thinks that I um I, again uh, in Four Cardinal Virtues definitely discusses um, the will as intending things that are good, uh, naturally desiring things that are good and true. But in here, I don't see exactly why it is. Um, I I I do think this is true and right, but I'm not sure what the origin of this demand uh, for sex, sensuality, vanity, nosiness, sentimentalism, pleasure, cruelty, and even Scheidenfreud in our in our communication. I, I don't know where where that necessarily comes from, but the demand is there and Piper says supply naturally comes uh, to fill it. And uh, particularly, this, this is a strong allusion to, to Nazi Germany, uh, the vicious enjoyment of others' misfortune um, <clears throat> brings about a, a supply of uh, frenzy to destroy, readiness to accept radical answers, to go for some sort of final solution. And all these weaknesses need flattery. Um, Yet not just plain flattery, no, he says. There has to be credibility. There have to be convincing reasons, in Hegel's words. To succeed in such a task is without a doubt a demanding enterprise. Even Socrates loses all his irony in conceding this point to the sophists. You're truly experts in this. You must have a deep understanding of human nature. You know exactly which spot to hit. And I, I think one thing, he makes this point, I think earlier on, uh, when he first discusses Hegel, and he makes it sort of as an aside here, he talks about the power of advertising, which he says is even more powerful, um, augmented as it is, again, I'm paraphrasing, by the new psychoanalytic science. Um, and he, I mean, he also seems to make a claim earlier that um, as our body of what I take to be sort of scientific knowledge or knowledge about people um, grows, the more effectively we can use power in this way. And I mean, propaganda is in fact a very like scientific, rational application of these principles on a nationwide scale deployed against millions and millions of people. Um, so there's something uh, rational in the sort of instrumental sense um, about this and something uh, where it's aided by a uh, pretty substantial knowledge base where he includes psychoanalysis here, but we can imagine other things or aided by technology, uh, things that, that, that we have more of than Plato did. That that has human nature hasn't changed. Um, our our ability to abuse language has Certainly. grown. And returning again to sort of the difficulty of assessing intention or or, or um, the ethics of various forms of language, Piper starts to discuss Kierkegaard. Uh, and some other writers who have come to find that you need some form of flattery 
needs some sort of emotional manipulation or hook to cajole people into to truth, into getting them to recognize um, what is true in the world. And this seems to be a fear of his, that, that we might become more comfortable in this gray space. Yeah, I struggled a little bit with that part because I guess, can you manipulate people toward what's true? Um, I mean, because you use these rhetorical tactics um, to convince people of things that um, are, aren't good for them, that aren't true. And maybe they didn't even want, but he says you might be able to, to, to convince them that they are things that they want. Um, and I guess, is there, is there an, um, an unethical way to speak about what's true? Uh, is there a way to abuse language in the service of truth? Um, which he doesn't, he doesn't answer. Um, but he talks about, um, you know, Kierkegaard who, you know, talks about the need to use language that draws people in. Um, and he says, you basically, you know, take them on a raft, founder them on some rocks and then get away because they'll kill you. Uh, but I don't know what, what are the language rules when you're talking about what's true? I think part of the problem of equivocating here in the essay is, is that Plato seems to be um, equivocating uh, in his work as well. Uh, I mean, uh, Piper cites uh, John Wilde, an American Plato scholar, uh, talking about how the sophist appears as a true philosopher more so than the philosopher himself from the eyes of an audience, from students. The one who appears to be most uh, philosophical and most capable of educating you very possibly is, or at least could be, uh, the one who's going to mislead you uh, the most. And the corruption of the best uh, often seems seems to be the worst. Uh, but then he bounces to uh, citing the Phaedrus, where... Um, Socrates questions, is it not obvious that even those who have a genuine message of truth and reality must first court the favor of the people so they will listen at all? Is there not such a thing as seduction of the truth, which seems to, to support your case that, that the truth has qualities about it that people naturally seek out? But I mean, the Socrates biography also seems seems to point against that. Um, the, the problem of the Republic in large part seems to be, how do you communicate um, in light of the apology? How do you communicate with those uh, who don't want to listen? Um, and it, it's a problem throughout a, of what constitutes uh, poetry, art, images that are compelling but not true, uh, true but not compelling. Is it possible to have those that are both misleadingly compelling but also true i don't know right and and i mean to well when talking with people who are who don't want to talk to you or say like thrasymachus who are overtly hostile toward you socrates reverts to being ironic at times he he compliments them in a way that we know is uh you know he doesn't mean 
and that isn't true, uh, but that disarms the interlocutor and allows them to progress further in their exchange with each other. Um, is irony lying, you know, in, in some sense? Now, it's out of a genuine concern for the truth. I, you know, I understand. Um, but I, I don't think that we would accept that anything may be done linguistically in service of the truth. Um, I mean, you know, say in getting in terms of getting people to accept, you know, the gospel or something, um, you know, we wouldn't, I don't think say that you could preach anything that you wanted in order to do that. This is, this is, I mean, this is, I think our aversion to the sort of prosperity gospel, um, you know, things, which is maybe they, maybe those people earnestly believe that they're preaching the truth to people, but they're doing it in a way where they're, um, you know, we, that we think is wrong by promising them fantastic worldly riches by, um, and, and um, I guess he doesn't go too far uh, into that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he leaves the, the line ambiguous as, as I said, I, I think we can infer from some of his other works that, that intentionality is probably going to be the deciding factor here. Um, but he leaves us uncertain and says, and I think this is a fantastic paragraph, um, the difficulties, let them be as they may, this much remains true. Wherever the main purpose of speech is flattery, there the word becomes corrupted and necessarily so. Instead of genuine communication, there will exist something for which domination is too benign a term. More appropriately, we should speak of tyranny, of despotism. On one side, there will be a sham authority unsupported by any intellectual superiority. And on this other, a state of dependency, which again is too benign a term. Bondage would be more correct. Yes, indeed, there are on the one side a pseudo-authority, not legitimized by any form of superiority, and on the other, a state of mental bondage, which really, um, I think, brings to mind I mean, concerns he would have been faced with in his, his daily life. And I think a, a concern of both Socrates and Plato as well, that if you seed the, the um, fight for, for what's true and good, you become bonded uh you you're placed in bondage to those who who have no regard um for it and so it seems that perhaps some sort of rhetoric or persuasion is acceptable um yeah and it it it, it, it's challenging um piper continues to talk about troubles with with propaganda um and again the the difficulty that the best of propaganda that convinces you of the worst of things is all the more menacing because you can't recognize it. It's too well concealed. Um, and that, that it's, it's a pernicious problem. Um, it, the wrap up of this essay is good. Um, he, he writes, that the present moment, 
the place of authentic reality is taken over by a fictitious reality. My perception is indeed still directed toward an object, but now it is a pseudo-reality, deceptively appearing as being real, so much so that it becomes almost impossible anymore to discern the truth. In a state of totalizing propaganda, it... It becomes, I mean, impossible not only to find out the truth about things, but even to to search for truth um, amidst deception and trickery and flattery. And it's a, a true wreckage, a corruption of the world that is possible. Um, if this flattery is extended, expanded, if it's institutionalized, propaganda at a, at, at a national level. And it seems that Piper has one one hope left. Um, he outlines a couple of things that, that can be done, sort of theses about the nature of communication that, that should be kept in mind um, in order to combat this. But more than anything else, uh, he places his hope in the, the academy, both uh, the platonic sense and modern system of higher education, that their their domain, their purpose is to place truth above all else. Um, academic must mean anti-sophistic if it is to mean anything at all. It's an opposition to the things of the world that destroy, or distort uh, truth, uh, knowledge, and that, that this calling to being an absolute space of freedom uh, from the outside, from political power, uh, from all those who would want to distort the truth, um, he says, is precisely this freedom that consists the irreplaceable achievement of all institutions of higher learning in view of the bonum commune, the common good. This is what's necessary for society, it seems. Uh, having having academic institutions, independent, capable of free knowledge and inquiry. And that's, that's the only bulwark you have. And I don't know how much faith I put in that. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems um, that some of the ulterior motives that he worries about thought falling under have sort of, I mean, I guess I'll say structurally crept into the academy um, where you have a sort of marketization of the universities um, where financially lucrative departments and like we know which ones those are um, thrive, uh, you know, STEM in, in engineering, th things, things that are, you know, important certainly, but um, probably not what he has in mind, thrive uh, because they're lucrative and uh, departments that, you know, for which it's harder to get grants or um, that the tech or industrial corporations don't want to fund as much, um, you know, at smaller schools get slashed or, uh, or downsize or merge or, um, yeah, disappear entirely. And I think he recognizes the seeds of that. He doesn't seem overly optimistic about the, the hope of, of universities. I mean, this isn't a treatise on, on uh, universities as such, but 
I mean, it's clear to him and to us, I mean, these problems have been extant since the the original Academy. Um, It seems intractable uh, that it will continue well into the future. Um, And it's worrying. It's frustrating. Piper's concern for how how these, even perhaps small uh, trends of intellectual conformity or of seeking even small flatteries truly snowball in, into into more serious uh, problems of truth and, and those into propaganda that in turn forces serious crises of trust and truth. I, I would also, um, I guess this is less purely about the Academy, but um, is probably worth just uh, like mentioning as we, uh, wrap up here is that uh, Piper's view of language and the the view of the person that's implied in the more explicit discussion of language seems to commit him to a sort of very democratic uh, politics um, where you know people debate amongst themselves and um, and it, it exchange ideas and uh, also, hopefully, have the the respect for each other that's necessary to sustain um, a democratic community. And I, I mentioned that um, because you can see, I think, resonances of some of this uh, in the discussion of uh, Pope Francis's latest encyclical, uh, where he he talks about political dialogue. Um, and political discussion. Um, and there are two quotes in each of them um, that kind of parallel uh, e- each other and I think uh, speak to the sort of political disposition we're supposed to have uh, toward fellow citizens, first and foremost, and just to everyone generally. Uh, the first of which uh, in Piper... Um, uh, he, he, when he's talking about the, the, the harm that sophistry, uh, causes one of the things he talks about is, uh, denying the other person, um, uh, you know, their claims about reality, um, or, or, you know, their, their, their participation in reality, their share in that. And then, um, Francis uh, talks about everyone's um, I don't know if he says right, but um, that everyone has a a claim to share in the truth and in fact possesses some share um, of the truth, which you must respect, um, you know, in order to engage with dialogue, uh, engage in dialogue with them. Uh, And, and so it it seems to be of a part um, of uh, this sort of uh, dialogical, uh, democratic, Catholic thought um, that Piper is only one one part of in Europe uh, at the time, but that we can uh, ex- extend to what Francis is uh, saying in writing. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, so fascinating uh, discussion of language 
throughout, I, I think, the way that that's a tool of power, uh, at times uh, elevating and humanizing, at times uh, being manipulative and de dehumanizing. Um, I want to leave uh, the last, last little bit of this essay. Um, Piper uh, talks about how institutions of higher learning are fundamentally institutions of culture and society. They're the framework that, that help determine society's overall condition. He writes, their task then is to live out a paradigmatic model of conditions that sustain and nourish the structure the political commonwealth at large, namely the free interpersonal communication anchored in the truth of reality, the reality of the world around us, the reality of ourselves, and the reality of God as well. And I think even beyond uh, just political communication or academic communication, that that is true. Fundamentally, language is a means of bringing people together and reflecting reality. The, the corruption of either of those is, is a terrible thing. Right. And I, I guess I would say that the academy is supposed to be the paradigm um, of that. But if it's the only one remaining, or, you know, the only place remaining, uh, you know, where that can be found, then you're already in big trouble. Uh, and so, you know, that's that that's to say, something like this maybe in less of a pure form but ha it has to be found out there in the political community yeah all right well thank you very much listeners if you enjoyed this episode please leave a review and share with your friends thank you very much